Weakness is provocative to predators. The more signals you send somebody like that, the more likely it is they're going to keep pushing the boundaries and, and trying to hurt you. Violence. Today's episode is all about it, and jiu-jitsu teacher and legend Matt Thornton will be taking us through the complexities and evolutionary causes of violence, as well as the lessons that we can learn from it. He'll tell us some of the harrowing stories of mindless violence, some of them pretty excruciating, and explain what it is that causes violence. Matt is a prominent jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu trainer and has trained such high-profile names as Conor McGregor. It was recent guest Peter Bogosian who first recommended I invite Matt on the show and I'm really happy he did because it was absolutely fascinating and perhaps, you know, for someone listening, uh, very important important stuff to hear. We did encounter some internet and audio problems which have tried to clear up and edit and erase the extra audio stuff as much as possible in post, but apologies for that and hope you still enjoy. Do buy Matt's book, The Gift of Violence, to learn about the different things that violence can teach us and how it can be avoided. Most importantly, how we might notice the signs of violence in advance and avoid predators and assailants. One of the most significant lessons that he teaches me, I think, is to stop worrying about being impolite or politically incorrect or whatever it might be, and to trust my gut in circumstances that provoke fear. Catch the bonus episode on patreon.com slash andrewgold, and please keep on reviewing the podcast. But now, you're on the edge of violence with Matt Thornton. We can hear some lovely tropical birds and things in the background. Where are you um, speaking to us from? Oh, I'm at home. So I'm in my house in Portland, Oregon. Oh, nice. Okay. I want people to imagine Portland. It's not, I, I imagine something more exotic, like South, <laughs> because of all the no, no. noises. No, okay. Pacific Northwest. Hey, tell me, tell me the story, and it's a difficult story to, to hear, but it's important. It's integral to your book, I believe, of Joshua Komisarjevsky and Stephen Hayes. Yeah, I, I talk about that in the book. It's a terrible story. Um, you had two guys who were basically career criminals, losers. They had, they, I don't think they had serious um, violent criminal records, but they had long criminal records for burglary and things like that. And they had been watching uh, this, this uh, mom and her daughter at a grocery store, and they had actually – been following the family for quite a while so they had they had noticed her they had noticed the daughter they decided that they wanted to uh to victimize them they checked out the house a couple times and one night they followed her back um, after she went in they waited a bit they came inside they entered through an unlocked door they tied up the the father and put him down in the basement and then they tied up the girls and tied them up to their bed and the mom and it's a long, terrible story. People can read about it or they can look it up. But long, basically what happened is they then took her to the bank and asked her to withdraw money. She had the presence of mind to tell the teller, uh, to pass a note to the teller and explain what had happened. But she also said in the note, um, they're being nice. They're not threatening violence. I think they just want money. And so the teller immediately passed that on to the police. The police came to the house, but they stayed on the outside. Based on that note, they didn't engage i think up for upwards of an hour i'd have to go back to double check that but there was a long gap before they came into the house and in the meantime when they went back they murdered the mom and then they raped the both girls and took pictures of them and then they covered the girls while they were alive in gasoline and the mom in gasoline and lit them on fire and burned them to death uh the only person that survived besides the two of them was the father who managed to hobble outside somehow when uh, the house was burning, they left the house and were immediately arrested. And um, and that's one very awful story. I tell the story in the book for two reasons. One is to let people know those people exist and they're not going to go away. And you have to have answers for people like that. And two, just how likely it is that you will have an encounter with somebody like that. How do you prevent something like that from happening? Um, all the lessons that we can draw from that situation or any situation like that that i think are useful for people to um 
to be able to prevent something horrible like that from happening in their own life. What might she have done then had she been trained? You know, might she have, I suppose, when they took her back, performed some moves or something? Right. Well, it's not so much about performing the moves. It's about understanding, prioritizing your your life and violence and understanding the nature of these kind of people. So the first thing is you have to remember they entered through an unlocked door. So had the door been locked, that in and of itself might have solved the entire problem. They're, they would have to have broken glass or or done something to try and break in the house. It may have alerted the father and woke him up. And then, you know, I have a feeling the two of them would have scrambled off. Um, the next thing they, that I would have after having the door locked would be a, a dog. Had they had a large dog and the door locked again, this, this wouldn't have happened. After they had already entered the house through an unlocked door, and my point behind that door is prioritizing, you know, the things that are most important. The things that are most important in this case aren't learning how to fight martial arts or even having a firearm, although all those things would have been useful. It's having a locked door. Like I said earlier, predators and violent criminal actors are predators. They're lazy and they will take the path of least resistance and a locked door and a locked window or a dog is most often enough to prevent that from happening. But once they did get in there and they took her to the bank, her mistake was thinking that by complying with them and by telling the teller to comply, which is essentially the, the message she was passing on with her note, that things would be okay. And that's not going to be okay, right? She didn't know that, but but you can you never want to put yourself in a position where you're at the mercy of somebody like Joshua Kaminsky or, the, or this other, you know, the people like this. So allowing yourself to be tied up, allowing yourself to be moved to a second location, uh, telling people, you know, they're not, they don't, they don't have intentions of, of hurting me. Those were all mistakes at any point along the way. Had she fought back, I have a strong suspicion things would have gone differently. Maybe, maybe she would have got hurt, maybe not, but how could it have been worse, right? She, she would have, these guys aren't aren't like super strong competitive athletes and these are low lives and if she started to put up a struggle and she started to scream and she started to fight or she was in the bank and she just flat out told the teller who these guys were they would have been arrested they would have been taken into custody right there or they probably would have fled at any moment had that happened and so the big lesson from from that story there's a bunch of lessons but the first lesson is prioritizing your life and what's important what's most important and the simple things like i said like having a locked door is very important and fighting back not thinking that if you comply or go along with a predator like that that it's in your best interest your your best interest is almost always to fight back it does it does seem strange that she told the teller like rather than help me you know, what can you help me? What can you do? Just, oh, they seem like nice guys. I'm going to give them some money. Yeah, I, I don't want to mischaracterize the note because I don't have the exact verbiage of what she said to him. But, you know, she did. She was able to convey to the teller the situation. So that was positive. But she also put a kind of spin on it because my assumption is she thought that she didn't want the police to show up too soon or to invade the house. And then all of a sudden things would go from bad to worse. But that's actually the wrong decision to make. The right decision to make would have been immediately engage these guys immediately have the police involved, immediately fight, uh, and not wait around um, relying on their goodwill. As we can see what their intentions were and what they actually did, and it's hard to believe. It's hard for some people to wrap their mind around the fact that there are humans out there who, if they find a vulnerable woman or a young girl, will rape them and burn them alive and not think twice about it, but there are. And you don't want to comply with somebody like that. I suppose, yeah, it's it's it, what you're saying runs counter to the message a lot of us have been getting, which is that um, you know most people just want some of the money, some of your money or something like that, which I guess she thought, um, and that if you do fight back, that's when you know all they wanted was some money, and by fighting back, they might feel compelled to you know shoot you or hit you or whatever it might be. Right. Most violence doesn't occur for money, so in a plurality of reasons that you know there's multiple reasons why violent conflict occurs. By far, the biggest category in that plurality is going to be silly status-based disputes among boys, basically young men, who fatherless young men, fighting each other over, over really stupid, simple things. That's the, that's the biggest category of, of violence and homicide. Um, most homicides don't occur because of an armed robbery gone wrong or somebody trying to steal money or because they're poor and they're trying to get money for food or something like that. that's not how it works. So there's a small segment of our society who's willing to hurt other people 
most often they're very immature. Uh, they're, they come from fatherless homes. They're young males between the age of 17 and 22. And most violence, m more than half of the violence in the United States and homicide in the United States is that. That's what it is. And then a smaller category, you're going to have violent criminal actors like these two guys who are up to no good. And in this case, they actually wanted, I think their primary reason was wanting to rape the girl and the mom, not the money. And I think they may have even just thought of the money as a, as a secondary, as a secondary thing. But, uh, yeah, fighting back, understanding how these situations occur, who these people are and what you need to do, I think is really important. Yeah. And I think what you were saying about complying and stuff, and th there's a, there's a part uh, in your book, I think you talk about, you know, worrying about being polite and things like that. I, I remember just from my own experience, I was in a taxi in Medellin in Colombia, because I used to live there. And I knew that this guy was going at night a different way to where I had asked to go. And I was so worried about being polite. It's ridiculous to think back. You know, it's so stupid that I didn't sort of put up any sort of fight or ask anything or, you know, and there was loads of time at that point to just quickly jump out the taxi when it was at a red light or something. But I was just so worried that what if I've got this wrong? Um, and he ended up taking me to like a car park, a parking lot where he got out the car and I thought, oh, my God. And he didn't say anything to me. And I thought, this is it. What have I, why was I so polite? What's going to happen to me? And another car had pulled up. And he went over to that car. And he got cocaine from him. And then he came back and sat in the car. And then he said, do you want some to me? And I was like, no, I'm OK. I'm OK. And then he drove me to my destination. But that could have gone very differently. But I was just so worried. I, you know, and I, I guess a lot of people would, you know, you end up dying from wanting to be polite. Yes, that's a big problem. That happens a lot. It's not something to feel bad about. That's just normal. Um, but people like the Kreminsky or your driver or other people like that will often take that politeness as a sign of weakness. Again, they're looking for the path of least resistance. So if they think it's somebody that's, that's not going to put up much of a fight or is going to be quiet or is going to comply, that's that's provocative to them. Weakness is provocative to, to predators. The more signals you send somebody like that, the more likely it is they're going to keep pushing the boundaries and, and trying to hurt you. And that, that happens all the time to people because they, they don't want to. What happens is you have within you a really powerful set of primal instincts that exist because of your ancestors. I mean, if you think about it, as, as Richard Dawkins often says, right, you come from this unbroken chain of successful ancestors who all managed to procreate and have children before they died, every single one of them. And many of them had to commit homicide or, or battle or have, they had to have good instincts to be able to do that. Good instincts to know who to trust, who not to trust, when to fight, when not to fight. All of that is inside you and it's inside everybody. And when you go back and you interview crime victims, Oftentimes, they'll say at first that everything seemed to happen very suddenly and came out of nowhere. But a good interviewer, after they talked to him for a bit, almost every single time there were multiple signals and feelings and intuitions that the victim had that things weren't going well, that there was something weird here, that this guy was kind of creepy, situation looked a little different, there was something that just didn't feel right. And they ignore those instincts, often for reason for lack of a better word, noble reasons, because they don't want to, they don't want to appear rude. They don't want to be racist. They don't want to, they don't want to be mean. They don't want to assume the worst of people. And so they start overriding their, their own instincts. And one of the big messages from my book is don't do that. Right? Your instincts are good. If you have a feeling that something's not right, trust that feeling. And the, and the more you try and rationalize that in the mind, the more sub vocalization you've got going on about why that's why it isn't bad. And the more you should be concerned and alert because you're probably not wrong. And if you are wrong, right, it can happen in a particular situation. You can misjudge somebody. If the other person is legitimately decent and they realize for whatever reason that they may have scared you or, um, you know, I'm a big man myself. If I get into an elevator with a small woman or an older woman and I can tell she's nervous, I don't get mad about that, right? I get a little bit embarrassed about that. I'll back off a little bit. I want to make them feel comfortable. Any decent human being will do that once they realize it was a mistake and you got the wrong impression and be like, OK, and then we can start the conversation again. And if they don't do that, if instead all of a sudden, you know, they start to get angry and show their true colors, well, then again, right, that's your instincts were correct about that person. 
decent people don't get angry when they realize they scared other people. They get embarrassed. I've done that thing, um, like walking, if I'm walking at night on the street and there's a, a woman near me and we end up walking the same way for a long time where I've like called my girlfriend and loudly spoken to my girlfriend in a nice way so that this person can see me as not a horrible threat or something. Is that mad? No, it's not mad. It's, that's you realizing you might be making somebody else uncomfortable because you're a good, decent person. You don't want to make them uncomfortable. And that's a very natural reaction. And to be to be clear, I think that's going to be the reaction for the majority of people. The majority of people are good people. I don't want I don't want people to walk around in fear or paranoia either, thinking that there's violence lurking everywhere. And so there's a big part of my book about trying to educate people about really what you really do have to worry about, because I actually think the more educated people are actually the the less paranoia and fear they're going to have as they walk around because for most of us in most places around the world you're pretty safe especially in 2022 and uh, most people are decent people uh, and they're going to react the way you did but when you find somebody who doesn't then you know and and they're going to take signals like that as a form of weakness and it's going to actually excite them and urge them to commit to, to victimize who, you or whoever whoever appears weak in that moment. Do you, do you have sort of stats or rough statistics around uh, you know how how often there are violent attacks? I know that I mean you wrote that it's it's true that the majority of Americans will become victims or intended victims of a violent attack. As it, that sounds like a lot. Yes, but uh, let's break that down a little bit. So it's because when we talk about just one number, it can sound like a lot. The vast majority of violence, all violence, assaults, murder, let's talk about murder for a second so we can be more specific. The vast majority of murders are committed by somebody that knows the victim, right? So if we're talking about women, the vast majority of women are killed by boyfriends or husbands, dates, somebody that they know. It's not some stranger that comes around from the corner with a ski mask and all of a sudden kills them. Those things happen, but they're very rare. And if we're talking about something like a serial killer, you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to ever meet a serial killer. So most violence occurs by, by people you know. And part of what I want to do in the book is give people the skills so they can recognize when they have what I call them character disordered people, people who have a character disorder who are around you so you can separate yourself, make distance from those people one way or another. And sometimes those people are related to you. Sometimes they're quote unquote friends or acquaintances. And if you're good at that, if you're good at keeping character disordered people away from you, and I call it a character disorder because these, these people tend to, to do the same things over and over again. And my point is when somebody makes a mistake over and over again, hurts somebody else over and over again, or insults somebody else over and over again. It's not a mistake, it's a character flaw. And that's something that you should pay attention to. And if you're good at keeping those people out of your life and policing your own personal boundaries, the odds of you ever becoming a victim go way, way, way down. So now what we're left with is the violent criminal actor that you might run into the street, in the street, the actual um, stranger who might attack you, right? And the odds of that become way, so much smaller. And there again, there's going to be signs. The vast majority of the time, that person's going to interact with you first. They're not just going to come out of nowhere and, and slice your throat or something like that. They're going to interact. They're going to communicate with you. They're going to test their boundaries. They're going to see if you say no. They're going to see if after you say no, if they keep going, if you enforce that no with anything, they're going to look around and see if you look weak, if there's anybody else around. I mean, they're going to be checking you out. And you probably are going to notice that if you're paying attention to what's going on and you're going to get all of these signals that something's not right, this person's not right. And if you can learn to listen to that and you're honest with yourself, then again, now we're now the chance of you becoming a victim gets so small that it's almost to the point where I say you don't need to worry about it. Right. We're back to maybe being struck by lightning. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. 
Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. It sounds quite similar to, you know, I've done a podcast talking about, you know, sexual assaults and also sexual assaults on minors. Uh, and it's a similar thing where it's almost always someone who knows them, uh, a family member or something like that, um, or, or a boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah, I think it's 80 or 90% of the time. Yeah, when you're talking about, child molestation the vast majority of the time it's somebody that knows the parent or the child you know it's a it's a mom's boyfriend it's a cousin it's family friend it's somebody like that and in those situations as well there are signals that the person put forward about the relationship that they want to have with your kid that usually go ignored by the parents oftentimes because they don't want to appear rude they don't want to think bad of uncle joe or whoever it is and and again, goes back to if you start to get these signals about this person that, you know, you think that maybe they might not be the best person to leave your kid with, you should listen to that and pay attention to that. And if you're wrong, the other person is going to be embarrassed. They're not going to be mad at you, right? They're going to be like, well, I'm sorry you got that impression. Of, uh, that's terrible. But um, you need it, it really, really important. If people trust their own instincts, it's it, almost to the point where there are things that I want to explain to people, and I do explain to people in the book to look for physically about how violent criminal react actors act and how they set things up and how people who come into your life who are character disordered will act and signs that you can pay attention to. There's definitely an education people can have, but really you have that knowledge inside you subconsciously, whether you realize it or not. And if people just learn to listen to those instincts, to trust those instincts, and to understand that you need to enforce your boundaries, weakness is provocative, and you need to stand up for yourself, or you need to stand up for your kids. And if you feel like some, there's something off with somebody, you need to listen to that. And if people do that, again, the chances of them or their children becoming victimized, they go so far down the list that that again, you prioritize most of what you need to worry about. I suppose those instincts, uh, they sort of get muted almost when, when you fall in love. And that's why it must often be relationships. You only see the best side, right? Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's most often love. I think it's, it's people overriding, not wanting to believe it's true. Right. And uh, in almost every case, it'll be a relative or a boyfriend and people are like, well, that that just can't be true. I, I just don't want to think that's true about about the other person. And um, if you're getting those signals, it's probably true right? in most cases. That's the part that a lot of people don't want to hear. And very often it, it, 
you're right in the sense that it becomes way more dangerous when the person's related because they're not going to want there is a familial relationship there there is that bond of love and they're not going to want to believe it but you can look at the data and see the volume of women that are killed by their husband or um you know even when we're talking about young kids when when you have a young child that's murdered most often it's the mom right a, a big category of that's going to be the mom and so it won't help to ignore that. You have to just learn to listen to those signals, to understand those signals, maybe a, a little bit better education on what those signals are and keep those people out of your life. Basically manage distance. And the, the nice thing about that is when we're talking about functional martial arts to bring it back to physical fighting, the key to defending yourself in a physical fight or dominating in a fight or a match or anything else is controlling space. Right? If you can control the distance in a physical conflict, you can control the conflict. If I can decide if the fight goes to the ground or stays on its feet or what space exists between us, I can control that fight. And that's true when we're talking about physical conflict. And it's also true when we're talking about keeping predators and character disordered people out of your life. You basically notice them, pay attention to your instincts, and then you start creating distance and boundaries and putting barriers between you and that potential threat so that it never gets to the point where it has to turn physical. Have you given much thought to, uh, the, you know, these character disordered people, what, what it is about them that makes them predators? Are we talking about psychopaths, you know, 1% of the population or, or what? Well, there are psychopaths, sociopaths, and, and they're small, though. Like you said, it's one or whatever, I think it's right around 1% of the male population, maybe 1% or 2%, and even smaller with the female population. And even there, when we're talking about sociopaths, most are violent. Most will be, you know, con artists or that kind of thing. They're, they're going to display antisocial behavior, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're a serial killer. Um, why is a far more complicated question? The only thing I will say with certainty is that I'm certain that it's a combination of both nature and nurture. And oftentimes we're, depending on which, what our ideological beliefs are, we will ignore one or the other, and I think they're both important. They both play a role. So like I said, the majority of violence is committed. I, at the heart of the majority of violence is a problem related to maturity, right? If someone has looked, taken an honest look at the data of crime and violence, especially in the United States or in any first world country, and the conclusion that they come to isn't that maturity or a lack of maturity lies at the heart of most of that violence, then I don't think they've understood the data. And when I'm talking about maturity, I'm talking about things like impulse control, self-awareness, and empathy. And all those things are related also, of course, to your prefrontal cortex. So you can have people who have poor impulse control, poor self-awareness, and, and lacking empathy, and they will have children who have poor impulse control, poor self-awareness, and lacking empathy. And then the, the behavior within the home or things bad that happen within the home or learning from their parent or significant others they grow up adds to that so i think it's always a combination of both nature and nurture and we have plenty of evidence to show that um the way we defend it regardless is by noticing the traits of those kind of people for whatever reason they have them and again making space and keeping away from them um, and being clear that the motives don't usually involve money right? the, the motives are usually, like I said, some status-based disputes, something related to ego, something related to um, something silly. Like most of the shootings that we have in the United States, when you hear about a given weekend in Chicago and they have 16 or 20 shootings, it's easy to think that there's some multi-million dollar crack cocaine or methamphetamine business that's going on. And because of all this money, there's these young people are battling over this money. That's not what it is. These kids make McDonald wages. Most of these conflicts and most of these people killed are killed over something petty and something stupid. And in almost every case, they come from a home where there's no father and they have no idea um, what it means to be a man or what it means to take care of other people. They have no good examples around them for what that means. They are um, raised by their peers. And in a, any any time you have a community like that, you're going to need a lot of police. And uh, and you're gonna you're only gonna be getting it on the back end because you're not dealing with the with the biggest issue, which is, in my opinion, family structure. 
But that is what the majority of violence is about. It's not about people being poor. It's not about people needing money. It's about status and young men who don't know what it means to be a man and who are apt to get involved and to escalate a physical conflict over something really dumb. What is a, a, a man? How, how can one, you know, you were saying people don't know how to be a man or how to be a man in today's world. What does that mean? Well, I think it's something that you learn from your dad. I think you have uh, to have a strong male role model, preferably your father in the house, to teach you how to treat women respectfully, how, what it means to, to work for what you, what you have, what it means to be polite. There's all kinds of things that, that fathers teach their kids, not even just verbally or intentionally, but just from how they behave and how they interact with other men. And learning how to do that is a, you know, a super important skill. And, you know, where I'll, I'll tell you where this all comes together and where I kind of came to this conclusion. When I first decided I wanted to write a book specifically on violence, the first thing I did was sit down and look at all the raw data. And I wanted to look at the data, the crime statistics with fresh eyes before I started to read more of the literature that was out there. And when you read the data, there's a few things that are going to stand out right away, I think, to anybody that looks at it. I'm, right now, I'm talking specifically about the United States, but these, these things, these trends that I talk about, you'll see in other countries. The first thing is that most violence is committed by men. I don't think that's much of a, you know, of a shock to people, but the vast majority is committed by men. Second thing is the age. Most often it's between the ages of 16 and 25, and to be more specific, between 17 and 22. And you're going to see a spike like that, and it starts to go like this as the males get older. And so the more any given uh, community has of these young men in that particular bracket, you know, the more chance there is for violence. The third thing that stands out, and there's no way to get, a, get around the reality of it, is that there are massive differences in the United States and violent crime rates between different racial groups. In the United States in particular, more than half of all homicides for the last 40 years have been committed by young black males, which make up a demographic of about 3% of our population. And the majority of their victims are also young black males. And that's half of all the murders and the crime we see in this country. And trying to figure out why that is, is an important thing if we want to help those victims and you can control for poverty and you can control for um, education, you can control for unemployment, you can control for all these things and still see these big differences. But the moment you start to take into account out of wedlock birth rates, you see they line up perfectly. And so you'll have some groups like Asian Americans who commit very little crime in comparison to their population size. Uh, other groups like African-Americans who commit a, a lot of crime in comparison to their population size. And then when you look at the out of wedlock birth rates, they match up. So when you go to these neighborhoods like in Chicago, where you have all these shootings every weekend, 90 percent, 95 percent of the kids that commit these crimes, the young men that commit these crimes are coming from fatherless homes. And that family structure and being able to rebuild the family structure is is the long term solution to be, being able to to help minimize that violence and solve that problem. Unfortunately, in the short term, the only thing we can do is have more police and longer sentences for this small population of people who commit these crimes over and over again. And I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm talking about. Within any community, including within the black community, it's a tiny percentage of people that commit the vast majority of the crimes. So it's a small group of young men who are doing most of the shootings over and over and over again. And if they get caught with a gun and they're let back on the street and they get caught with a gun and they're let back on the street and they get caught in an armed robbery and they're let back, they're going to shoot somebody. And then they go away for a few years and then they get let out and then they're going to shoot somebody again. And that's basically what's happening right now. And because the police have pulled back from those communities, it's gotten even worse. We've had the highest spike in homicides the United States has ever seen last year. Um, and unfortunately, most of the victims are also you know, young African-American people or poor working class people who live in those neighborhoods and sometimes children as young as four months old who get caught in a crossfire. But what is it about out of wedlock birth rates that matches up so perfectly with violent crime statistics? And my, my thesis is what is is young men who lack maturity, self-awareness, impulse control, um, 
in a sense of empathy. And I think that that begins with the family structure and not having fathers in the home. Yeah, it's a re- that's a really interesting thought because I just had a couple of episodes ago was a man called Jacob Dunn who um, killed someone with one punch when he was like 19. He was out, you know, drinking with friends, got in a fight because he was getting in fights every week and he punched someone. And a month later, the police were around his house because he, he realized the guy had died. He had no idea. Um, and he grew up with that, with the, lacking a father figure as well. So, I mean, do you think it can go both ways? I mean, lacking a mother figure, do you feel like there has to be a mother and father? And 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 controversially, I suppose, what might that say about less or less traditional, you know, modern uh, two mothers, two fathers kinds of things? Yeah, I want to be careful here because people will jump on what I they'll jump on a lot of things I just said but one of the things they'll jump on is all you know as if I'm denigrating single moms and it's actually the opposite what I'm saying is you know there's tons of single mothers out there who do a great job raising young men what I'm saying is they're actually doing a really great job because it's a really hard thing to do to raise a young man and when a when a single mother raises a young man on her own, she's taken on a lot of responsibility and it's a tough job. It's a tough job. It's a, it's a job that requires, I think, two people, requires a mother and a father. Um, that doesn't mean two gay men or two lesbian women can't raise beautiful children. That's not what I'm saying. But when we're talking specifically about young men, I think they need to have in their life strong male role models that they can emulate and that will keep them in check when they start to go through puberty and get to the age where where the violence starts to occur. There's a story I tell in my book um, of Pelansburg National Park in South Africa. I went there one year. And when I was there, they were having a problem with the rhinos being killed. And there's not many things in the wild that can kill a rhino. And the first thought was poachers, but um, they weren't being shot. And, they, and whoever was doing it wasn't taking their horns, which is usually why they kill the rhinos. And they quickly found out from cameras that what had happened was a lot of the young male elephants had gotten together and they basically formed a gang and they were running around and killing a rhino. They would find a rhino and they would pick on it and kind of torture it, push it in and then eventually gore it to death. And the reason why that happened was because they had um, overpopulation of elephants at, I think it was Kruger National Park. And so they moved some to uh, Pelansburg, but the straps on the helicopters weren't heavy enough or strong enough to be able to take the bulls. So they took a lot of the uh, female elephants and they took a lot of the young males, but they didn't take any bulls. And so how do we do this? Do we have to kill all these young male elephants? So they figured out a way to fix those straps and get some male bulls into the park. And within a couple months of filling up the population with more older male bull elephants, the violence and the attacks on the rhinos completely stopped. And so, you know, you'll see this in the animal kingdom, you'll see this in other primates, you'll see it with humans. I mean, anytime you have a lot of young males and there's no strong older males in that community, there's not fathers around, um, there's going to there's gonna be problems. There's going to be problems. And that's what we see um, over and over again in the United States. And when you see these status-based disputes, things that are, like I said, people being shot and killed many times kids who get caught in a crossfire over something really stupid. We're not talking about battles over millions of dollars or turf wars over, you know, giant uh, drug industries. We're talking about really stupid, silly, dumb things that nobody should be shot over. But that's what's happening. That's probably at least half you're going to see in the United States in this next year. And when and when we are confronted by these people who might come from, you know, homes without a male role model or a male seeming role model, uh, we often don't react in the right way, I guess. I mean, so was, uh, going back to another experience of mine, I was once confronted by this priest who I thought was going to kill me in Argentina. Um, and I genuinely thought he might kill me. And I noticed then that my, and I've told the story on, in the past, so apologies to, to listeners for, you know, boring them. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, my legs just went to jelly. Like they couldn't sort of, if I'd wanted to run away, I felt like I couldn't. I just was completely frozen in that moment. And I, I, do, you, do you know about that that feeling? And is that like an evolutionary thing? Yeah. So, you know, when you're confronted with a violent situation like that, something that legitimately scares you, right? And when you're legitimately scared, it's not by choice, right? Fear 
is not something you choose. It's you're in the presence of an immediate threat. It's not, and that's why you feel that. There's there's nothing wrong with feeling that. That you want to feel that. That's your body telling you, hey, there's a legitimate threat right here in front of you. And when that happens, people will have different reactions. Some some people will hide. Some people will freeze. Some people will charge. Some people will run. And you'll have these basic reactions to the flight or fight or flight um, impulse in your in your nervous system. And you can train yourself through training over and over again to control that reaction more and to choose which one of those you do, whether whether you flee or whether you fight as opposed to freezing. You can do that. But there's no shame involved in how you reacted initially, because without training, you don't really have a choice over that. Your, your body's going to react how it reacts. There are good evolutionary reasons for every one of those things I mentioned. There's good evolutionary reasons for freezing for a moment and not moving at all in terms of being prey and, and predators. There's good reasons for running. There's good reasons for hiding. And there's good reasons for attacking, charging. And so, you know, if you were to join the military and you're part of a military unit, one of the things that you're going to be working on over and over again is learning how to overcome how to control better your fight or flight response. And the thing I try and remind people um, when this comes up, especially young men sometimes who will have a sense of shame about it, is there's no there's no shame. It's just natural. It's what happens. It's not going to go away. If you could train martial arts or be a world's professional fighter for 20 years, and when you're in the presence of a legitimate threat, you will still have that same reaction. They have that reaction. They have that reaction when they walk in a cage. It doesn't go away. But you can learn how to manage it, how to ha feel that and still maintain motor control. And that takes training. And it takes training for anybody. Some people might have that more naturally. That's nothing to be proud of because it's not a not a the product of choice. So that's one one good thing about training combat sports, whatever the sport is, even if you're just talking about wrestling, if you're constantly having matches and dealing in those kind of environments where you feel the fight or flight response before the match, you get all the nerves and all that. And then you go out and you engage in the sport and you come back. The more that happens, the more comfortable you're going to be, in, you know, uh, when this occurs. And I, I gather that you were confronted by bullies at school when you were younger. Um, so what was what was that like? What what did you, you know, to take me through that? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, kind of skinny, bookish, effeminate kid when I was smaller. I wasn't, you know, masculine or large or strong. I didn't have older brothers. Um, I was a perfect candidate for somebody to that would get picked on. And when we moved to a bigger school, when I was about 12, I became the target for some of the school's bullies. I, I write a little bit about that in the book. And my reaction, my first reaction was nothing, not, not back, not getting involved. And there's a lot of shame that comes with kids who don't fight back. So one of the things I always tell parents is you want to encourage your kids to always fight back because especially young boys who don't fight back, and get beat up, don't defend themselves. That can that can have life lifelong consequences for that that kid's feeling of self worth. In my case, that happened a couple times. Um, it was humiliating and very embarrassing. And my way of overcoming it was to just become extremely violent. And I, I flipped the other side of it. So I became hyper aggressive and, and I went and started you know basically hunting down these kids and using tools of what I had ever had to do and i hadn't found a solution to bullying i just like flipped the coin you have aggression and fear and you have two sides basically the same coin and you can choose and i chose aggression as opposed to fear because it felt a lot better and it was far more acceptable in my peer group and of course then that quickly left me alone um but i that doesn't mean i knew what i was doing and so from that point forward i sought out how to actually physically fight well um there's a story i tell them well, actually with all the things i read about violence especially with kids and bullying the one that i found the most touching was one that was written by roger ebert who was a film critic in the united states who died that's of, right yeah, yeah. pretty famous died of, of cancer yeah right? he died of uh, i think it was jaw cancer but he told a story about how he got picked on um pretty badly when he was a kid and from that point forward he had always even had issues watching violence in films and he struggled his whole life because of um some of those some of those things that happened to him when he was a kid and it, it really um kind of touched me and i realized 
if I had gotten him when he was young, like if I had gotten him into the gym after one of these encounters happened or something and got him training just the way we train now with, with my kids and our kids at the gym, it would have been such a life-changing thing for him. And it was one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure I wrote this book and encourage people to take up combat sports because, you know, they're great. They're great for kids who get picked on. They're great for everybody. I can imagine that. I can imagine that feeling and just feeling a little just in control in some of the because everybody gets into a few scuffles and things when they're teenagers. And I can imagine uh, that helping. Why can't um, pacifism work? Why can't everybody take up pacifism? Yeah, um, it's kind of like saying if, if there was no sickness, we wouldn't need doctors. It's true. And it's also irrelevant because there's sickness. And if there was not the kind of people like Oshawa Kaminsky, then we wouldn't need self-defense or violence. And that's true, but they exist. They've always existed. They, they've existed as far from the beginning of time. I don't think they're going to go away. I think there's always going to be a percentage of our population. Again, it's a small percentage. It's not a big percentage. Um, but there's always going to be a small percentage of our population that when they see somebody who's weak and vulnerable, they will attack to hurt them, to torture them for fun, for for other things for resources, whatever reason. And because that reality is there and it's always going to be there, good people have to learn how to be dangerous to bad people. And so one of the things I like to do and one of the goals that we have with our organization is to teach people how to be dangerous to bad people, teach good people how to be dangerous to bad people, because being dangerous to bad people is the solution to bad people, because bad people aren't going to go away. It doesn't mean we can't you know, minimize the volume of violence we have in the community through different programs and through, like I mentioned, especially encouraging strong family units and fathers in the home, but, but there will always be that percentage. And so, you know, it, it behooves everybody to learn how to deal with that before, before they have to. I'm thinking now about, um, I think of my own relationship, my girlfriend, a bit, we've been together over eight years now. Um, and she, she's, um, like trained up in some martial arts stuff. And so she, um, like nothing like not not expert or anything like that but enough so that like if she and i had a physical fight it's not actually clear who would win even though i'm a lot lot bigger and stronger than her uh not that we've i mean that's ever it's ever or ever would come to that but i mean that must be quite empowering for her and i suppose i mean we've talked about how women is often you know the result of a relationship or something like that do, do you particularly suggest women you know, take up jujitsu, would it be? What, what should they go and do? 100% jujitsu. My daughters, I have two daughters, my wife um, trains, my whole family trains. And uh, for my daughters, it's not even a choice. They have to go to school. I, I view having a blue belt, which is your first adult belt in jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu, kind of like I view being able to swim. So I want my daughters to have to learn how to swim. And my wife is from Iceland. Everybody in Iceland has to learn how to swim. It's an island. That makes sense to me. Everybody in my family has to learn how to at least be able to deal with the basic level of attackers. And in, with women, especially, the, the beautiful part about jujitsu is if they're assaulted, it's probably going to be some man holding them, physically holding them and preventing them from escaping, trying to rape them. Just by the very nature of trying to rape someone, you're going to be involved in grappling. You're going to be holding them down on the ground, trying to pin them, to move them to another location. And the delivery system that works best for smaller people, for women to be able to deal with a larger, bigger, stronger, aggressive attacker who's trying to put their hands on you, who's trying to hold you, who's trying to move your body, who's trying to control your body is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And a few years of that will teach them, they'll develop an incredible amount of confidence from it. But just as important, they'll also learn what they can't do. They'll learn what they can do and they'll learn what they can't do. And one of the problems with fantasy-based martial arts is it can instill um, in people a kind of a false sense of confidence because they don't really know. But if you, for example, that first belt in jiu-jitsu, that blue belt, for you to get that belt in jiu-jitsu, you have to be able to compete physically back and forth with other people who have that belt. So it's a skill you can't fake any more than you could fake being able to speak French or play an instrument. And, part, and that skill is being able to escape when somebody's headlock got you in a headlock, being able to escape when somebody's sitting on your chest and holding you down or in between your legs and trying to pin your arms. And a woman who's trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu will, will have been in those situations over and over and over again against men on the mat, in the gym, against men who are fully resisting over and over again. Sometimes they lose and sometimes they win, just like all of us. But 
failing is an essential part of that process. But what does that do to you after a year, after two years, after three years? Well, it creates somebody who, when you put your hands on them, they're not going to be in shock. And be like, okay, you're in my world now. You're putting your hands on them. I, this is where I live. And they're going to they're going to be able to operate there. And they're going to know also what it feels like and what they can do and what they can't do and understand their limits. And that's just as important. You know, a woman, I have several female black belts. Um, a couple of them have been world champions. One of them is now in her, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think she's at this stage 69, maybe 70. She started with me when she was 50. Um, and she knows exactly, they all know exactly what they can do and what they can't do. Um, and they know what they're capable of and they know what it feels like and what a man's strength feels like. And they can look at a guy and understand what it would be like to deal with that guy in a violent encounter on the ground. They just know it's, in, it's ingrained in them. And that knowledge is, you know, priceless in it. And the cost for that knowledge is time on the mat, spending that time on the mat, which develops all these, um, wonderful things as it relates to understanding yourself and your body and physical conflict and connection to other people and uh, conflict being able to deal with conflict because i'm like so i'm six foot four and about 220 pounds um and fairly sporty because i play soccer i used to play rugby but uh don't know how to fight at all so would one of these is, is the blue belt the first sort of step up is it yeah it usually takes three or four years okay so a woman of sort of st normal stature probably beat me in a in a fight i you see this happen every day in my gym so we'll have men who will come in and sign up they might be big uh athletic men uh six foot three six foot four 220 230 pounds and when they graduate foundations class which is after six weeks they're put into the other classes where you can roll which is our form of sparring wrestle with other people all my classes are co-ed we do have some women's only classes um but we but most of the classes are co-ed and so the women and men train together and probably 30% of my total gym membership, which is close to 700 students, probably 30% is female. And so inevitably, there's going to be uh, another woman on the mat, often higher ranking. And I have some some women right now on the mat, and I, I just know, like I have one purple belt in particular I can think of right at the moment. I know that most big men that come into the gym, unless they've also have some jujitsu training, she's just going to work them over. I mean, that she's going to make them submit time and time again and then they're left with a choice they're left with the choice of quitting because a lot of guys can't handle that or realizing wow this is amazing that she's capable of doing that to me and then dedicating themselves to learn the art and i always hope that they make the healthy choice which is to keep doing it but very often it'll cost me students um and that's okay too because the kind of guy who can't handle that situation is probably not somebody i want to train to be that skilled anyway but if we talk about like Leah, Leah Taylor, who's one of my female black belts, who's a competitor as well. She's capable of handling herself. Any untrained man that walks in off the street, he may be big and strong, but if he doesn't have some jujitsu skills, she's probably going to survive and she's probably going to finish him off. She's probably going to choke him or break their arm. Is she a bodybuilder as well? I've just looked her up. Oh, no, but uh, she's... She's strong, but no, she's not a bodybuilder. I must be a different Leah. There's two Leah Taylors, I think. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, she's got black hair. She lives in Montana. teaches out of one of our Montana locations. But. Did you or your organization train Conor McGregor? Yes. So one of my first black belts was um, John Cavanaugh. And John's uh, one of the first black belts, if not the first one, I'm not sure, in Ireland. And John is uh, Conor McGregor's coach. So Con John Conor has been with John from white belt to now from the very beginning and stayed with his team. And uh, yeah, John has a very successful under 19. Connor's one of them and certainly the most famous. Uh, but we've had quite a few well-known fighters come through the gym, uh, Forrest Griffin. And back in the early days of the UFC, I would train, very, my training partners very frequently were Randy Couture and Dan Henderson and guys like that. So we've had a lot of, a lot of MMA come through the gym. Really cool. Okay, last question. What are your thoughts on gun ownership? Is that a good idea or not? Uh, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Uh, my wife carries, I carry. Uh, it depends on where you live. Obviously, I, I would never want you to break the laws and we're over in the UK, so it's different. But here in America, we have a constitutional right to carry. And a lot of people will, will think that one of the solutions to our 
our violence issues here in the United States is getting guns off the street. The problem with that, and I don't want to go in a long dialogue about gun control, but very briefly, we have more guns in the United States than we have people, right? So we probably have 400 million handguns in the United States. And you're not going to get them back. They're out there. And when you look at the people who commit violent crime, who commit homicides with handguns, and the vast majority of, of uh, homicides in the United States that are committed with firearms are done with handguns, they're almost always convicted felons who are not allowed to own a gun. And that's the, that's the funny thing about violent criminal actors. They really don't care about laws. And so as long as we live in a society here where there's lots of guns and they're going to have access to guns, then I want the good people to be armed as well. And the one caveat that I put in there is that requires training. So if you're going to carry a firearm, you have to learn how to hold it, how to hang on to it, how to keep it if somebody's trying to take it away from you, how to fire it, how to clear, you know, how to use the tool. And like anything else that requires good, consistent, responsible training. But as long as someone's mature and responsible gun owner, I think it's a great thing. And um, yeah, I would highly recommend it to anybody who's looking for a self-defense option. Should you then um, not have to pass a test to be able to have a license? And you might tell me that that's already the case. I don't actually know. Well, it depends on the state. Um, you don't have to pass a test to just have a gun and to have a gun in your house. So we have a constitutional, we have the Second Amendment, we have a right to you know, have a gun in the house for self-defense and for that kind of thing. I think anyone who's going to carry a gun, or have any, even if you just have it in the house for self-defense, right? I think anybody who's going to have a gun should have lots of training and get training. You should have a safe before you ever get the gun so you can lock it away so some burglar doesn't take your gun and put it on the street. You should have training when you get the gun, after you get the gun, and as long as you own the gun, you should be trained. So I think those things are very important. As far as legislating that, it just depends on the state you go to. Different states have different laws as it relates to concealed carry permits and what's required to get that permit and that kind of thing. Thing to understand is the, the one group in the United States that commits the least amount of crime are concealed carry gun owners. People who carry guns on a regular basis, legal gun owners, are some of the most responsible citizens in our nation. They are not the, the problem. They're not the ones who are killing people. They're not the ones who are committing crime. The people who are committing crime and who are killing people, they're already not allowed to own a gun. And very often they're in cities and areas where getting a gun is legally is pretty much impossible. Areas with very strict gun control. And it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't, doesn't keep them from shooting each other. It doesn't keep them guns off the street. Um, I have not seen, I think when you dig into the data on that, it's not going to... Uh, it's not going to validate gun control as a viable means of lowering violence in the United States. That's my opinion. But more importantly, I think when you take away somebody's right to own a gun in a culture that has more guns than people, you're effectively taking away somebody's right to self-defense. And I don't think that's OK. I think everybody has a God-given right to defend themselves. It sounds um, very reasonable. And I wonder how, I mean, idealistically, if, if, if it were possible, if there was some sort of deity that could come down and get rid of all the guns at once, would would you think that's a better option? Yes and no. I, I think people often focus on the tool and forget, you know, if we got all of if I could wave a magic wand and get rid of all the guns tomorrow, the for example, the two guys we talked about at the beginning of the show, Joshua Kaminsky and his partner there, they would both still be there. Right? They would both still be there. They would both still look to to rape and burn alive some young person they would both look to kill people there's all kind of you mentioned your your friend who accidentally killed somebody by punching them or the person you're interviewing that happens quite a bit you know um a lot of people are are killed by just being beaten to death with hands a lot of people are stabbed a lot of people are hit with sticks a lot of people you people get blown up it's the, i suppose the mass the mass shootings and the school shootings is is that's what makes the headlines out over here in the uk i'm not expressing judgment either way i'm just that's what it's the it's the school shootings, isn't it? Well, it's gonna it's gonna make a headline, and because it's awful. But about if we're talking about school shootings in particular, we can rewind right to the very first thing I talked about. If we want to really stop school shootings, then you begin by controlling access, which means you have a fence around the school and you have a controlled point of entry, where everybody that walks into the school and has access to the kids has to go by a desk and have some kind of ID and be known. And, and you can't just get in and out of the school. The teachers need to have doors that they can lock. And when you do that, you basically solve the problem. 
you're not going to remove 400 million guns from the United States to prevent a, a shooting, but you can take schools and prevent people from, from being able to have access to those kids. And if we were serious about defending our kids against school shootings, then we'd be serious about controlling access into schools. Much like after 9-11, everybody was wondering how do we prevent another plane from flying into World Trade Center? And we had people talking about wanting air marshals on every flight, which is impossible given manpower. Arming pilots, okay, maybe. The first thing they did was the most important thing they did, and that was they reinforced the cockpit door and they changed the habit of the pilots and the flight attendants so they didn't come out and, and leave the cockpit open and use the bathroom or give coffee over and over again. And so now, if I were to take over a plane, I can't get into the cockpit. So the first thing they did was they controlled access. And anytime we're serious about making any place safe, whether we're talking about a school or an airline, uh, a government building, the first thing we do is we control access to that building so that we can keep the predators out. And like I said at the beginning, predators are lazy. They look for, the reason they're going to schools is because they're soft targets, that's why. They look for places where there's gonna be a lot of victims who can't defend themselves. And by controlling access, as soon as they see that is gonna be more of a hard target, they're gonna move on to something else. Thank you, Matt Thornton, for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. Guys, do consider getting hold of Matt's book, The Gift of Violence, which is available in all the usual places. And follow him on Twitter on at aliveness underscore ape. I'm on Andrew Gold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram. And there's an On The Edge with Andrew Gold TikTok account as well, all with clips and extra bits and pieces. Lots of fun. If you enjoyed today's episode, do sign up on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold to continue listening to the bonus episode and to support the podcast and get ad free episodes no more ads in the bonus patreon thing that's all for today thank you so much all of you for your support and have a beautiful day wherever you are